this time on Sonic Earth Expeditions. The drummer who launched the modern frame drum movement. Hello fellow listeners and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Beth Toole. My guest is legendary percussionist, composer, innovator, and educator, Glenn Velez. Glenn is world-renowned for his work on the frame drum. He incorporated his classical training and his studies from various drum cultures to create his own style of drumming and teaching. A four-time Grammy winner, Glenn has played with Steve Reich, Paul Winter, Suzanne Vega, and Pat Metheny, to name just a few. He currently collaborates with virtuoso rhythmic vocalist Loire Kotler, to whom he is married. In addition to composing and performing, Glenn is an esteemed educator, teaching lessons, masterclasses, and workshops. His influence cannot be overstated. His tireless efforts have expanded the popularity of the frame drum around the world. He joins us to talk about his experiences discovering and revitalizing an ancient and often underappreciated instrument. I was living in New York City, and I had gone to music school in Manhattan School of Music, so when I got out of school, I was doing freelancing, etc. And then I started to uh, play with uh, Steve Reich on uh, marimba, and because a couple of friends of mine were playing with him, and they and I auditioned and got in that band. And in that group, there was a couple of players who were very involved with world drumming already, uh, uh, Bob Becker and Russ Hartenberger. And those guys kind of steered me to a local uh, South Indian drummer who was living in New York City at the time. Because I'd always wanted to study hand drumming, but up until that point, uh, I hadn't studied any hand drumming. Everything was with sticks. So I got uh, started to take lessons in uh, 1977 with this man named Ramnad Raghavan, who's a South Indian Murnungam player. That's the main South Indian drum. And uh, while we were taking lessons after a couple of weeks, he saw a tambourine on my uh, wall in my studio in the city. And he said, oh, we play that in South India. And I uh, said, oh, well, let's, can I hear what you do with that? Because I'd been using the tambourine in the orchestra, and it was, you know, just very quite simple techniques. And he started playing Kanjira style. And that style is really, uh, even to this day, one of the most amazing ways of playing the frame drum used in its uh, very popular in South Indian classical music. And so I, st- I was immediately attracted to that. This Kanjira is just a small drum. It's maybe 10 inches with one uh, jingle, one little uh, coin, and everything's executed with one hand. But it's an amazing, the facility and the, uh, the skill is just mind-blowing. So there's a lot of YouTube videos of people playing the Kanjira, and, you know, anyone should check that out because it's, it's really wonderful. Anyway, that was the introduction to hand drumming for me and, and the frame drum. And after that, it was just, what other frame drums can I play, try out? 
And uh, by, you know, living in New York City, I was able to go hear an Arabic drummer and uh, go hear a South Italian tambourine player. So there was all these communities that back in the 70s and 80s, I would just go to concerts and I saw a concert of a guy playing um, Arabic, the Arabic tambourine called the Rick. And I really recognized right away, oh, this is really an, another elaborate way to play the frame drum or the tambourine. And so I just went up to him after the concert and said, you know, do you give lessons? And he said, oh, sure, come to the dance studio where he plays at. And that was the second type of frame drum that I was studying. But it just mushroomed from there because I, once I had studied those two, the Kanjira and the Rick, it was obvious that there was a lot of just tremendous amount of material in this way of handling the frame drum and something that I was totally unaware of and that at that time in the 70s, there was in the early 80s, there was very little awareness about frame drumming in in the Western world. Uh, so that was how I started. Once I did that, I just kept going. Did it uh, raise some eyebrows in your classical program there when you started doing this? Yes. Uh, well, basically, you know, the tambourine has such a uh, uh, kind of stigma of being very simple and, you know, there's not a lot you can do with it. So when I would tell the classical players that I knew and even the people in Steve Rush's band, oh, I'm studying the tambourine, they thought, <laughs> they thought oh, that's really good. So then six months later, they'd say, well, what are you doing now? I'm still studying the tambourine. And they thought, how can you study the tambourine for that long? But, uh, you know, gradually people become more and more aware that there's a lot you can do with it. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, kind of uh, humor to it. But that is something that is still part of the experience of playing frame drums is that people are very surprised. Even even today, you know, any frame drumming that is is still, it's still not, you know, uh, mainstream or anything. A lot more people know about it. But usually when I play a concert, there's always people that have never heard anything like it. And, you know, when they see the tambourine, what it can do, they're like, wow, you know, this, I never knew the tambourine could do that. I heard that so many times in my life, you know. But it's one of those, it's a fun element to it because there's a surprise. You know, people are very surprised that the instrument has so much uh, potential and, and musical qualities and, of course, all the rhythmic stuff you can do with it. But it really has a lot of uh, uh, intrigue that people get when they hear what's possible on it. Mm. Now, along the way, you also studied the history of the frame drum. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that was one of the early uh, things that started to happen. Once I had studied the Kinjira and the Rick, I started to realize, uh, just think about, wow, these, these are two very elaborate ways of playing the tambourine. I wonder where else this is done. So I started to go in the library <laughs> and... Uh, I started to just look at books that had a lot of pictures of instruments. And I started to see, wow, there's all these tambourines that are all over the world. And then I started to find books that had uh, pictures of 
tambourines and frame drums from the distant past, from ancient Egypt, from ancient uh, Greece, from ancient Rome, from all the ancient Mediterranean cultures. It was the drum that everybody played back in the old days, in those ancient times. And that really was an inspiration to me because I wasn't seeing anybody around me playing frame drums. I was the only one. So uh, to see how popular it was in the past and to see the visual representation of people playing not only uh, by themselves but in groups, in ensembles with harps and flutes and other instruments and also in frame drum ensembles. So that was really uh, eye-opening for me and had a lot of sustenance in terms of the inspiration to do it and also to start to create uh, group drumming materials that I could play it with other people, you know. So I started to have a lot of uh, impetus to te want to teach people about it so that I could play with them. You know, that I'd have somebody to play with, you know. So and that's what happened, you know. There was people that really got into it and after a while percussionists started to to be interested and you know and so I started a frame drum group but it was all based on the inspiration of seeing what I was seeing in those ancient depictions of frame drumming. So many cultures have this kind of drum around the world. What what are the basic properties and sounds of a frame drum? Well most frame drums, you can get three sounds, three basic sounds. You have a low sound, which is called doom in the Arabic tradition and in South India also. So there's uh, these vocalizations that represent the sound. So doom, it's like drum language. And then there's pa, which is a dampened sound. And then there's tak, which is a high-pitched rim sound. So those are the three kind of melodic sounds that you get out of the drum. And those are found in most frame drumming. But then from that, you have a wide repertoire of things you can do to expand the uh, fingering that you can do, the kind of specific tones that you can get. And, you know, just every player, because it's your hands, and because it's such a simple instrument, it really lends itself to discovery. And, and any player who spends some time working with a frame drum starts to discover new sounds, new things that only they came up with. Mm. I see you have a drum there. Do you want to let us hear what the doom and the talk and the paw sound like? Yes. This one is called a bowron, and this is an Irish-style frame drum. Traditionally, this is often played with a stick, but I play it with the hands and use these various techniques that I know from the different hand drumming, frame drumming traditions that I've studied. So the doom is the low sound done with the thumb. So it's a, a low resonant tone, the lowest and most resonant tone the drum produces. And then there's talk. Talk is the high-pitched rim tone, and that's done with the fourth finger of the strong hand. It's actually done with both fingers, fourth fingers. So you have the lowest sound, the doom, and the highest sound, 
then you have the third sound, which is pa, and that's just a dampened sound in the center of the drum. So those are the three main sounds. So it's very simple uh, material at the basis of everything, but it's just like the seed, you know, the seed is one thing, but then it grows into the an endless variety of things. So that's what happens with the frame drum also. What kinds of patterns might we hear on this kind of drum that you have right there? Okay, we can, uh, I'll show you a, an Arabic rhythm called uh, uh, baladi. Can you play any rhythm on any drum? Well, you know, I'm, what I'm doing is uh, using the drums in a creative way to express what I feel is uh, musical ideas important to me. So after studying the different ways of traditionally playing the specific drum, I'll often uh, amalgamate a lot of different techniques because I'm looking at each drum as a sound tool and I'm looking to well, how many sounds and how many different uh, textures can I get out of this drum. And so there's two things. So that if I were to play in a traditional context with some Arabic musicians, then I would play using their sound tools that they're used to hearing. I wouldn't do some wacky stuff, you know, with different sounds that they're not used to hearing. But when I'm doing my own music, the, the sky's the limit. You can, I can really do whatever I want to do. So what I'll play is baladi, which is an Arabic-style rhythm. And then I'll improvise a little bit so you can hear some of the different sounds on, that are possible on this drum. Oh, that's so good. You mentioned the rick. It has the three basic sounds. It's a high-pitched drum, so the doom is very high-pitched. The tuck, rim tone, and then the pa, the slap. But because this is a tambourine and it has metal jingles, it has another sound, a fourth sound, called tick. So tapping on the jingle. So you put all those, all those together and you get this. Wow. And that's a tambourine. That's a rick. Yes, that's an Arabic tambourine and that's the Arabic way of playing the tambourine.
and then I have this one. This is a tambourine that's very similar to the uh, South Indian tambourine uh, called Kanjira, but this is one that's just configured a little bit differently, but it's basically I'm going to use the same techniques as you would on a Kanjira, and that involves a lot of pitch bending. So one hand is uh, changing the tension on the drum head. So I'm making the doom sound. And then changing the pitch. And then you have the pitatakadoom. Kitatakadoom. So you have that pitch bend. And then you have pa, the slap sound. extremely cool how did you go about developing your own style of frame drum playing well it's it's a very organic thing the the frame drum as i said before really lends itself to individual expression and that seems to just emerge organically from spending time with it it's like uh after a while you start to develop a relationship with the drum and the drum starts to give you feedback about what it likes and what what gives satisfaction on both sides so there's like a some kind of energy sound loop that happens with the drum and from that things start to emerge that that you're saying to yourself i really like this particular rhythm or this particular sound and then you do that more and more and discover more about it. So it's really something that uh, that emerges organically, and it's not like a thought process about, oh, I'm going to do this so that I can develop something new on the frame drum. No, it just by playing it, it starts to happen. Mm. Is there a universal drum language? There's not a universal drum language, but several... Uh, there are several important ones, and the two that I've been exposed to are the uh, the South Indian drum language and the Arabic drum language, which they do have a lot of similarities. But the South Indian one is very, very elaborate, and just like the, the rhythms of the South Indian drumming are very elaborate and very complex, they've developed a vocabulary of drum syllables that they can utilize no matter how fast their hands are going. So over the, you know, decades or millennia that they've been drumming, they've really come up with some wonderful vocalizations that represent the sound of the drum. I can demonstrate those if if you want. Yeah, sure. So if you say, Kitataka doom doom, Kitataka doom doom. Daddy, get the taka doom. So, 
So you can really uh, basically sing whatever you're playing. And it really adds a whole dimension to a whole additional dimensions to the act of playing the drum because you have these vocalizations that you can have in your head and you can be speaking them and it really does add a lot to the experience. In your piece, Miriam's Prophecy, that you sent me, the collaboration with you and Loir, Lori Kotler, your wife and longtime collaborator, you use those syllables not just in keeping the time, you use them as a musical element themselves. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you can really uh, immerse yourself in this art of the vocalizations, the drum vocalizations. And it is a really skillful kind of thing that, that starts to happen that emerges as like a thing of its own, you know, even without the drum. And in the context of the compositions that that we do and that we've created over the last 20 years or so, we use the vocalizations to kind of spur and inspire us to create melodies and different rhythmic possibilities. So Miriam's Prophecy, that piece that, that I sent you, is an example of that. We take some material that's sort of traditional from the South Indian style and then use that to as an entryway into the melody and some of the rhythms that are found in the drum in the uh, the melodic piece. We met in 2002 and uh, basically Loire was teaching at a new school and she was teaching music therapy and one of the uh, directors there of that program brought me in to show about the teaching that I do which I use a lot of vocalizations in the teaching and some simple stepping movements. So it, it kind of is in the realm of music therapy in that you're using your whole body. So she, she was at that class and uh, she we talked afterwards, a group of us went out after the class and uh, we were talking. She said, oh, I do, you know, I'm a jazz singer also besides doing her music therapy. and. Uh, so I said, well, send me a tape sometime if you get a chance, and I'd like to listen to what you do. So a couple of weeks later, she sent me a tape that she made with some of her jazz colleagues doing some jazz repertoire, and I recognized right away that she had a gift for rhythm. <laughs> she was very fluid in to rhythm. To say the least. Yeah. So I said, you know, I'm doing a concert out in New Jersey, uh, in a couple of weeks, a couple, I think next month or so, and I'd like to try and see if uh, you could perform some of my uh, pieces, my compositions. So we were getting together and started to collaborate in that way, and that uh, that's t 
turned into, you know, this fantastic collaboration where I've learned tremendous amount about the the process of music therapy and how rhythm and sound relates to that. And also, uh, you know, got a wonderful collaborator for singing the melodic material that I've created. And then after a while, we co-create a lot of pieces. So uh, it's been, you know, one of fantastic opportunity for me, me to really be with a, uh, a virtuosic sing, singer to, you know, have me delve into that realm. And you guys also teach workshops together. Can you describe what you guys do in those workshops? Well, we're we're uh, wanting to introduce people to the idea that you can um, explore rhythm, just taking rhythm and pure rhythm and finding out more about it and using that tool of rhythm as an entryway into a whole panorama of musical possibilities. And what we found is that it really does introduce people to something which maybe they haven't realized in that there is a whole uh, world of possibilities with rhythm, just as an isolated part of music. And by using the drum language, it's a way that everyone can, you know, immediately get an entryway into the experience of what's it like to uh, experience pure rhythmic material. And we combine that with some simple stepping and simple movements that get the body involved and use the idea that if your lower body is involved in the production of rhythm, whether a musician or a listener, it doesn't matter, that the lower body generates a kind of uh, steadiness that is very powerful in the context of rhythm and a steadiness that is an awareness about the flow of pulse and the flow of one rhythm to another. So that's all the kind of material we explore. And because language is such an integral part of every human's life, the idea of drum language is not so far-fetched and it really does tap into that part of ourselves that are already very fluent in language and memory and rhythm because language, everyday language, is a tremendous rhythmic tool also. We're really using rhythm in our language to express ourselves. How did you develop your teaching method? You had talked earlier about you wanted to create music that you could play with groups. Yeah, well, it, it, that teaching style came out of that because one of the things we started to do in the context of a group of frame drummers playing together was finding ways that we could really create a strong pulse uh, that we could play on top of. And one way to do that is simply stepping in place. And that stepping creates the pulse that you layer rhythms on top of. And that, I found, was very helpful and very practical as a way to introduce people to this idea of pulse and rhythm and the integration of those two things and the possibilities of 
playing just like a child would play with the different kind of vocalizations and rhythms and pulse that you can you know play with so those that was a big part of it the uh, vocalization and the stepping those two things using those in the context of teaching people about rhythm and uh, that is you know we've continued that and also expanded it to include gesture because gesture is another very very powerful tool to get people more aware of how they're expressing themselves and that in combination with the voice with the movement and then of course with the drum and how the drum guides you and leads you on a, a journey of self-exploration all that mixed together creates the teaching it would be hard to overstate the impact you've had on frame drumming worldwide it's grown exponentially what do you think about that oh i think it's great i mean once i you know got on to the frame drum and realized the potential of it and realized how uh, how much it needed awareness and how much enjoyment that would bring to people to, to understand that not only is this a, a very simple instrument, but it's an instrument with huge capability for music making. And, you know, it's like a discovery thing. You know, you want to, if you've discovered something and you just want to share it and say, look what you can do with this and I can show you how to do it. And those combination of that kind of uh, experience is just great fun. And it's, you know, once I realized that uh, there was an interest and people wanted to find out more about it, uh, you know, that that was the energy that I needed to keep going, along with the inspiration from the the uh, ancient drummers that I was seeing in the depictions from ancient from these ancient cultures. So you know it was like a uh, a wave. You get on this wave and just keep going, and you know it just builds up like a uh, you know a strong wave that just keeps building up as the enthusiasm for what you're doing and the fun element you know has never gone out of it. It's just tremendous fun to play and to show people what is possible. One of the things that I think is extremely cool is that when you teach in your group classes, you always mention that in the old pictures that you found, all the drummers are women. Can you talk a little bit about your support for women drummers in a realm that's been traditionally mostly men, or at least the tradition we know of, it's mostly men. Yes, when I started looking at these old depictions of drummers, and immediately saw ninety percent of them were women. And you know, in my even in my experience as a, a percussionist, orchestral percussionist, learning that it was the same, the same percentage. 90% of the drummers around me were were uh, men. And you can look at jazz drumming, you can look at many different kinds of drumming, and you'll see that kind of imbalance in terms of there's a lot of guys playing drums and not as many women. And this aspect of it, and I immediately uh, uh, 
experience that when I would start teaching because you put a you put a sign up says frame drum workshop and there'll be twenty women and five guys or two guys, you know. So it's a there's some kind of very powerful connection there between women and the frame drum and it was evidenced in the ancient world and I think the reemergence of the frame drum is an important reemergence of women as frame drummers, as drummers. And that is played out over the last 40 years that I've been doing this teaching. And uh, now there are many very, very skilled frame drummers who are women, who are teaching other women to play. And that has been, you know, I think a real important aspect of what has been going on with the frame drum because it's a, a case of expanding the ideas about gender and what is possible with each gender, you know, and and women as drummers is a real powerful theme. And I really think that through frame drumming, it's bringing that about, you know, in some way in a, here and also in Europe and different parts of the world where people are experiencing frame drumming more. Yes. In, in the group that I'm with right now that studies with you, we're all women. <laughs> I don't think I've ever, I don't think you've had a guy on there yet. <laughs> For yeah. that group, uh, you have created some compositions, teaching compositions, you told us, mm-hmm. uh, about people's dogs. Yes. You said you had written a lot of them. How many dog pieces do you think you've written for your students? Uh, there's about nine, nine pieces. And, and basically, it started when I saw your dog. <laughs> your dog, Violet. Violet. And, yeah. And uh, she would come into the room, and I would see it. And, you know, I love dogs. I've always had a dog when I was a kid, and I haven't had a dog in many years because living in New York and also traveling a lot until the last year. So um, the idea that the personality of the dog uh, is very strong, you know, each dog, they're really, it's like a person. There's a personality there, an expression of a specific energy that goes with that dog. And uh, that just triggered something in me. I said, I'd like to uh, write a piece that expressed something about the energy of that particular dog. And then once I, you know, once that idea started to happen for me, I would, when I was teaching, I would see people's dogs, you know, or are there animals hanging around? And then I would mention something, and and they would tell me, oh, this dog runs away every time I play the drum, or or this dog actually likes the drum to hear the drum play, you know. So, and then just seeing the different personalities just inspired me to to write the series. And also, I realized the role that dogs played in my own life. You know, when I was young and I was a kid and had different dogs and and uh, my mom before she passed away she had a, a very very uh, powerful uh, personality dog little little tiny dog that had a huge personality so you know I started to just look back on my experience with 
with dogs. And it was like thinking about people that you've known, you know. And uh, that seemed like a ripe place for some new material to emerge, you know, as far as drum composition. So that's what got me going. Well, if you ever publish them as a book of etudes, which I think it would be amazing, I have a suggested title, Doggo Cosmos, just like <laughs> Bartos Microcosmos. <laughs> That's a good. <laughs> Your composition, Koba, that you sent me for this interview, what kind of drums are in this piece? And what's the story of it? Yeah, these are frame drums, and there's three players. This is for a trio of frame drummers. There's three players. Yusef Sharonak and Shane Shanahan joined me, two of the top frame drummers in, in the world, really. Students of yours. Yeah, they started out as students, and then you know, went off on their own and have their own careers and do a lot of teaching and playing with ensembles. Um, so this piece, Koba, is part of a suite of pieces. There's three pieces that are that are in this suite, and this is one of the pieces. And uh, it was composed uh, around uh, the year 2000, and uh, this recording was done some time after that. And it utilizes some of the basic ideas that I really use a lot in the compositions, which is exploring the melodic aspect of the drum. So finding ways to really bring out these highs and lows and in a, a group context have sometimes be unison, everybody's playing together, and sometimes they're play, the dooms, the low sounds, are playing off of each other. And Koba itself is a... Uh, uh, a site in um, uh, Yucatan Peninsula. It's an old ancient Mayan site. So all three of the pieces in the suite, it's called Ancient Cities Suite, uses the idea of ancient cities and some music that maybe is uh, inspired by old cultures. Very cool. Are they all Mayan uh, ancient cities? No, one is called Tel Halaf. And that's a ancient site in uh, uh, Palestine or Israel. And then uh, there's one other one that's uh, uh, about an ancient site in Rome. Do you, do you see a connection with, I mean, to me, drumming is a very elemental thing. Do you see a connection to the ancient and the primal with the drum? Oh, yeah, I think. You know, the, the frame drum in particular has this one of the uh, qualities of frame drum that's utilized in uh, shaman material. The frame drum is the drum of choice for a lot of the shaman cultures. And there is a quality about it with these low sounds that it produces and the ringing sounds that it produces that it really does... Uh, facilitate taking a journey, you know, kind of an inner journey. And, of course, there's a lot of kind of trance states and uh, altered states that can come from drumming and have been utilized in a lot of different cultures as a way to facilitate going into a, 
uh, non-normal state. And um, the frame drum in particular has that qualities, but all drums do. But the shamanistic aspect of it, that you can journey with it very readily, and that, that it's utilized in that way is is something that's been done and utilized for for a long time. Do you have experiences with drumming in that context? Oh yeah, it's you know this is a uh, a situation where the more you uh, get comfortable with the sound and with the movement involved with frame drumming and with the, the connection with breathing, the more readily the drum will take you on that kind of journey. So this is something that happens for me all the time, you know, and it's something that uh, the, the way that I handle it is by using the vocalizations. They seem to really be a wonderful way to direct the energy where I wanted to go. And if I wanted to stay in a technical place where I'm really focusing on a certain specific rhythm or a certain new hand movement that I want to develop, then I use the vocalization to ground me in that place. And also I use the vocalization, like for instance, doing long tones to immediately evoke a very different quality in the way my, uh, my organism experiencing time, experiencing the flow of time and the flow of energy. So, you know, the vocalizations really help in that way and really help to direct the energy. Mm. Might you have a, an, an example of how to sort of induce that trance-like state? Oh, yeah. With your drum and your voice? Sure. So... Well, you say a drum that's like the drum that we use on Koba, which is a tar-style drum. So basically it's just held in a different way, and this is a very popular drum all over the Middle East. A lot of different uh, cultures in the Middle East are using this drum. And uh, so what I do is I can use overtones, which use long, slow breathing, to play along with the pitch of the drum. And the pitch comes from the doom, the low sound. So I'm playing that steady rhythm, and I'll do a little bit of overtone singing. And it, you can get the feeling of uh, what kind of situation this is internalized. You know, it's really a ready, readily uh, journeying kind of situation. Thank you. 
That was intense. <laughs> that was so awesome. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, that's why I say it's a. Uh, the drum is once you're get really comfortable with it and let it be your partner in sound making. It really is a guide, and it takes you places. And by uh, kind of making a friend of it in terms of the sounds that you produce with it and the way that you handle it, then it just will take you, you know, many, many places. Mm-hmm. And how did you come by the overtone singing that you were doing there? That's really quite something. Yeah, this is a style of singing that's found in Central Asia, and it's a way of moving the uh, syllable very slowly, taking vowel sounds and going very slowly from one vowel sound to another. When you do that, the sound starts to refract into its component parts, and those are the overtones. Language, we do this with language, and language is possible because we can produce and control overtones, but we're doing it at a quick rate. So each syllable is going by, and there are several syllables a second, so when you slow that process down, take a deep breath and take two syllables and go slowly from one syllable to another, vowel sounds, then this refraction of the sound just happens as a consequence of the slowness. So it's, you know, it's a very meditative process because you're slowing down something that you normally do much, much faster. So just like yoga or tai chi or the various techniques of slowing down in uh, Eastern cultures, overtone singing is, falls into that category. Mm-hmm. In one of the group classes, and I looked for this, but I have so many recordings that it was, <laughs> and they're all an hour long, I couldn't find it. But you mentioned, you were talking about hearing a rhythm that originated from the sound of water hitting a boat. Do you remember this? You had a whole story about... Uh... Oh, about Lake Baikal? Yes. Yes, so... What was that? This was in the late... Uh, what year was that? Maybe 88, 89. I played with Paul Winter, saxophone player, for many years, for almost almost uh, 15, over 15 years. And we did a lot of amazing trips all over the world because he's a naturalist and an environmentalist. So he really uh, connects those two things with music. And so we would go to the Grand Canyon or go to Lake Baikal or go to various fantastic natural places and play music and get inspired by being in these places. So in Lake Baikal, we went on this boat trip in the summer, uh, I think in 89, and it was just uh, putting along on this this uh, huge lake and there was not a lot to do so we would it would take two days to go from one spot to another so I would just sit on the deck of this boat and practice and play and uh, it was really inspiring because you know you were hearing the the waves lapping on the edge of the boat and you were hearing the the motor of the boat going psychically and of course for a drummer that's like an invitation to get into the rhythm of it and so 
you know, it was very inspiring in that way, not only the natural setting, but the uh, all the sounds that were being produced. You know, there was tremendous bird populations. We saw some, uh, the only fresh water seals in the world live in Lake Baikal. So, you know, we went all around with a couple of naturalists, Russian naturalists, who were showing us, and we would uh, improvise and create music. And also we, we played for the locals, because this is in Siberia, way in the middle of Siberia. And those people, the local people, there's the Buryat people, they have a frame drum that they use. And of course they use it in a shamanistic way for their shamanistic ceremonies. And so Paul Winter and I went and played for these people. I was playing my frame drum. And, you know, it was very interesting because it was different from playing for people that have never seen that kind of drum before, which is the usual experience for me. In that situation, those people recognized the drum immediately. And they saw, oh, he's, he's doing something different with it, but it's the old drum that we, you know, that we know. So it was, it was fascinating, that different feeling that you get from that audience as opposed to someone who's seeing it for the first time and saying, wow, that's a crazy-looking drum, and I've never heard it played that way. Does drum in particular lend itself to connection with, with nature? I think so. I think one of the most fun things to do is to have a drum and go out into the forest or go out to the the lake or the seaside and play. I mean, (laughs) it starts up such a uh, flow of inspiration and energy and good feeling that, you know, it cure a lot of of society's ills, I'm sure. One of the things that I want to do with this podcast is, um, as I work on it myself, um, have experts like you talk about how we can become better listeners and some of the things that you've done to become a better listener. What do you have any tips for people on how to how to do that? Uh, boy, that's that's a wonderful subject. It's an amazing subject, and you know, listening is such a uh, community experience. And the community of listening, listening to another person, listening to the sounds of nature, each of those listening experiences is uh, connecting with something outside of yourself and connecting in a way that is, uh, you know, uniquely human. It really is one of our traits and qualities that allow us to become something much bigger than the individual and this connection that we can experience. And a lot of that is through listening. Of course, the other senses are important also, but the listening one is fantastic for that kind of connection. And we're so attuned to this already because of language because we're listening for all the cues of connection with language. But if you go out into nature and listen to the sounds that are coming back at you, you really start to feel this uh, generating a feeling of something bigger than my individual self. And, 
you know, I think that is important also for our urban life, because when you go out into nature, you're hearing the uh, echo and the acoustic quality of a million different surfaces, right? All the all the shapes and all the textures and all the surfaces that nature produces. And that's in contrast to the city, where many of the surfaces are the same, the concrete, the shapes are the same, the squares and the rectangles. And all of that has a very powerful effect on the acoustic uh, medicine that we need. And it's not giving us as much as we we should have. And listening in a natural setting to the to the water on the shore on the beach in a natural setting of whatever it is that's a very different experience and that's something that is very uh, needed as a kind of medicine and especially for contrasting the urban living because of these issues of one surface one shape you know it's a monochromatic kind of way of life and, uh, you know, I think that's the, that's the most important thing I would say is go out in nature and experience the acoustic quality that nature can give you. Thanks to my guest, Glenn Velez, for his generosity in taking the time to share his experiences, his expertise, and for demonstrating the drum for us. If you'd like to find out more or even join the Frame Drum Movement, his website is a terrific resource. It's glenvelez.com. There, you can find information about his upcoming events and performances. You can buy his music and watch videos of him playing. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm Mary Beth Toole, and you've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Until next time, thank you, and remember, better living through listening. Happy trails. Happy trails.